0: I'm Beth Kuehl, your Executive Career Coach and host of Breakthroughs, Smart Strategies for Business and Career Growth. Today I'm really excited to have Genevieve Bell as my guest on the show. Genevieve Bell is the Director of the School of Cybernetics, Director of the 3AI Institute, Florence Violet McKenzie Chair, and a Distinguished Professor at the Australian National University ANU, as well as a Senior Fellow at Intel Corporation. She's a cultural anthropologist, technologist, and futurist best known for her work at the intersection of cultural practice and technology development. After completing her PhD in cultural anthropology at Stanford, Genevieve spent 18 years in Silicon Valley helping guide Intel's product development by developing the company's social science and design research capabilities. She is also a member of the Australian Prime Minister's National Science and Technology Council a fellow of the Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering, an officer of the Order of Australia, and in 2020, she was named the first Engelbart Distinguished Fellow by SRI International. Bell is a senior fellow at Intel, where she was formerly a vice president directing the company's corporate sensing and insights group. She is widely published and holds 13 patents. So today, I hope to cover with you, Genevieve, a host of topics. First of all, how you got into AI, what you did to make it more sustainable and responsible and safe, and what is this intersection you talk about between technology and culture? So there's lots to talk about. I know you have many insights. Are you ready for this conversation? I have
1: my first cup of
0: coffee. I'm staring out the window at the frost in my yard because, of course, you're
1: calling me in Canberra, Australia, where it is wintertime.
0: Oh, it's fascinating. I'm in mean, for, for a change. Sunny, lush Cleveland, Ohio. Um, looking <laughs> at all the beautiful flowers. And I think it's really cool that I'm in Cleveland in the Midwest and you're in Australia and it's wintertime there and summertime here. And yet we're having this conversation and we can record it. It's just miraculous. To narrow in on our discussion today, We're gonna focus on the amazing work that you're doing at the AI Institute that you created and what you see as the future for AI. But before we dive into the discussion of your impact in the field of AI and what you see for the future, could you share with us how you were inspired or what inspired you to get into AI coming from a background with a PhD in anthropology?
1: Absolutely. It requires a little kind of sidetrack into my own personal history, if you want to sort of think about it that way. So you're right, I'm a cultural anthropologist by training. I'm the child of an anthropologist too. I grew up on my mom's field sites in Central and Northern Australia in the 1970s and 1980s. I ended up in the US for education, East Coast, West Coast kind of deal and landed a job in a big tech company in the middle of the dot-com boom in a fairly roundabout way. I'd have to say when I was at university, I didn't think I would end up in a tech company. Um, not even sure when I ended up in the tech company. I thought I'd end up in a tech company, <laughs> but once I got there and I was in the middle of well, places that were building the future, right? There was something extraordinary getting to be in Silicon Valley in the 2000s and the, the teens and just watching people and participating in people making the future. And I think in the, the context of doing all of that, it became really clear that the conversation about AI that's, you know, been going on quietly in many communities since the 1950s was really starting to come to the fore. And I was particularly interested in who was in that conversation what they were talking about, and as importantly for me, what they weren't talking about. And I found myself wanting to be in those conversations more and more. And over the last four years, I have been actively working to build a community of critical thinkers and critical doers who are willing to engage in those conversations. So it's been an exciting shift.
0: What was the problem that bothered you? Here you're an anthropologist, you're studying human behavior, cultures, right? Um, how- yeah, I'm not
1: sure that it, was that it bothered. I'm not, so it's a good yeah. question, Beth. I'm not sure that it bothered me so much. I think it was more I noticed an absence. So for me, I'm always really interested in what's the history of a technology? Where does it come from? Because that tells you what kind of preoccupations are <laughs> built into it and who was imagining the problem that was being solved in the first place. And, you know, AI has got a really particular history. It's a uh, phrase that was coined in 1956 it was at that point a research agenda not a technology it's taken a very long time for people to build out the technologies to make that research vision from the 50s true and in doing that it really became in many places a conversation just about technology it became a conversation about what was technically possible it became a conversation where the fetish if you want to think about it that way was could you make a machine think like a human And it wasn't feel like a human, it wasn't necessarily uh, create like a human, it was think like it. And where think was this incredibly mechanistic, incredibly kind of instrumental break human thought down into tiny, tiny pieces so a machine can be made to simulate it was the phrase they used to use. Uh And for me, that felt like that was missing a lot of what makes us us, you know, whether it's about our bodies or our less rational selves And I wondered what was being lost in that shift. And I also increasingly wondered about other things, like what were the kind of tasks these machines might get put to? What was the cost of that machinery? Uh, One of the things we don't spend a lot of time talking about when we talk about AI is the energy use. Uh, They're quite power-hungry objects, those algorithms and those systems. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about all of those things. And I was also wondering to myself, well, okay, So this AI stuff is not going to stay inside your phone or your computer. It's going to end up in the built world, in buildings, in the electrical grid, in our homes, in our cities. And I wondered who was going to do all that work because I clearly wasn't the job of a traditional computer scientist or even an engineer. And I really became, I think probably obsessed is the right word, not necessarily a good obsession. I think I became obsessed with wondering... Who were going to be the engineers of this new world, right? Who were going to be the moral equivalent of the computer scientists of 50 years ago and the civil and electrical engineers of the 100 years before that? Mm -hmm. And I realized that what was missing were the people that would build these new systems, not the AI per se, but the AI in things. Mm -hmm. And I was approached by the president of the Australian National University, and he told me it was time to come home, which is kind of a pretty presumptuous thing for him to tell me. And I didn't really want to. Um, And it wasn't until I realized that this was my opportunity to make that thing that I thought was missing, i.e. the engineers of the 21st century. So I said to him, I will come home, but only if you let me build a new branch of engineering to take AI safely, responsibly and sustainably to scale. Sure, I think you'll be a little bit busy.
0: (laughs) Wow. I mean, that is quite ambitious and what an incredibly huge opportunity. I mean, creating a, a new branch of engineering so I'd like to just back a little bit before we get into that, because it's fascinating. I personally, and I think I, maybe many of our listeners might uh, share this concern. I always wonder, like, what it would take to have AI that has a conscience that's ethical. Like, how do we make ethical AI? And the, the six big ethical questions you talk about AI and, and why they matter.
1: Absolutely, Beth. I think there've been a lot of conversations over the last five to 10 years about AI and ethics. And to think those conversations need to be deepened and contextualized. On the one hand, I think we shouldn't just be talking about the ethics of AI, we should also be looking to our regulatory frameworks, to standards and to policy. We should be asking ourselves, what laws do we already have that cover these objects? After all you can't build a traditional car, put it on the road and not have a point of view about its safety. The same should be true about autonomous vehicles, right? Uh, So we already have legal frames that cover some of this stuff. In terms of the ethics of using AI in certain kinds of arenas for making decisions, we've already seen pulling back of that in the United States at least. So in the last year, companies like Microsoft and Amazon and IBM have stopped supporting the growth of facial recognition technologies and the use of them for policing because they can't find a way to do it in a manner that doesn't feel discriminatory. And the reason for that is not that the AI per se is biased, it's that every data set and every sensor that it uses has an inbuilt worldview that makes it challenging to the world as it really is. Cameras don't record dark skin as well as light skin. That has to do with the history of photography that's 160 years deep.
0: Oh, interesting. Uh-huh.
1: Uh, you know, uh, databases
0: about biases, like biases that the, the actual coder would have had.
1: Uh, no, for the most part, those are not biases of the coders per se. They are biases that are built into the data sets. Oh. They're decisions we sometimes make about how to favour certain kinds of data sets or not. They are systemic discrimination built into our worldviews. And sometimes, yeah, they are about decisions that coders make that wouldn't reflect a fair and just universe, but it's not just about the people that are making the code. It's actually about a whole series of pieces of that system that are and unfair. How does
0: the, uh, your ethical questions, yeah. i like to summarize them, how does that help address this problem in such a way that we could protect against um, this discrimination?
1: I think you have to go back and start to say, well, if we're going to build these systems, there are questions we need to ask. It's a little sometimes hard to ask, is something ethical or not? Because frankly, I'm willing to bet among listeners, you wouldn't have complete agreement about what people thought was ethical or unethical. Yeah. Um, years I lived in the United States I heard debates about everything from the death penalty to gay marriage and women in between where people would argue highly ethical positions on both sides of those debates sometimes on other sides you hadn't contemplated <laughs> so yeah. I don't think ethics is as straightforward as going don't do this do do that it's a conversation and so for me what are the big questions you'd want to ask in that conversation well i making a system that has AI in it for me the first question you need to ask is is that system going to be autonomous range of decisions it gets to make in that bearing in mind that most computational systems autonomy won't be fully human autonomy you know if you're a smart lift or a smart elevator you are not getting to decide as a smart elevator that you are leaving the building and wandering down the street for a beer you may decide however what floor you're going to go to without someone (laughs) pre-programming you is the system autonomous and if so How's that autonomy expressed? The second set of questions about how much agency does that system have, i.e., how much can it act without having to check what the rules are? So slightly different than does it have full free movement. Who gets to decide what the limits are? So for that, you know, go back to that elevator. Does it decide what's safe and what isn't? Who gets to override it? autonomous, i.e. can decide what floor it's going to go on, but if a firefighter comes because there's an emergency in the building, that firefighter should be able to override all the elevators, right? So how much agency does that system have? Yeah. A set of questions would be around how do you determine if that system is safe or not? What are its assurance practices? So how do you know if it is reliable? You've thought about safety and trust and privacy and standards and ethics the interface to that system, as in how do you engage with it? If that system is making connecting on its own, how do you as a human being encountering that system engage with it? Do you have to put a sign on it that says this thing is doing its own thing in the Sesame Street vernacular? And if so, how do we respond to a world of things that we already knew how they worked and now they work differently? High set of questions for me about metrics we would want to use or the indicators we would want to use to determine if these systems were functioning well most of the ways we regard critical systems and technical systems is about efficiencies and productivity gains. So we like this thing because it makes us more efficient. Efficiency is the best metric. <laughs> gotcha. And I think we've done many things in the name of efficiency that we might want to reconsider. So for me, there's a little bit about saying, as we build out new AI systems, are there other ways we want we would want to evaluate their usefulness? So might it be about energy use or energy savings or sustainability or likability? Well, I mean, you know, does it make the world better? Does Mm -hmm. it make people happier? Controversial, but, you know, there's a series of metrics you can contemplate there. And Mm -hmm. at least, for me, when I start to think about how would you design systems felt like were more transparent in their activity so that you could evaluate whether they were behaving in a manner that seemed appropriate to your context, Mm -hmm. I think you actually have to understand the intent. Like, why is that thing being built? Is the problem to solve the experience it's trying to make? What is the rationale or the logic that runs through it. So six big questions, autonomy, agency, assurance, intent, indicators, and interfaces. And for me, if you can think through those questions, you can usually get to a point of being able to say, this system has the capacity to not be possibly more fair or equitable or in sustainable and responsible.
0: Okay. What do you think the future of AI will look like? If you could paint a picture for us, what do you think the impact will be for your graduates of the 3AI Institute?
1: One of the places I'm at right now is I'm not actually sure what that future looks like. And on the one hand, that should be terrifying. On the other hand, that means a whole lot of things are still possible. So let me give you part of the answer a different way. When I look at the first two cohorts of students we had turn up here, there was tiny cohorts right you know 14 and 18 and now we have 10 cuz covid so you know it's a uh, 40 plus kids over that arc of time right it's not very many They have come from, and they're not kids. I shouldn't ever say that because they've ranged in age from 23 to 60. Uh, And they have come from such different places. I have had serving members of the Australian military. I've had members of the diplomatic corps. I've had people come out of American industry, people who are running their own businesses, people who were in the theatre and the law and were teaching math to high school kids in orchestras, journalists. I mean, it's been a full gamut, right? We graduated our second class. In July of 2021, I looked at all those people and I've got graduates now who are, well, I have one of them who's back in the army, working out how to take what he learned in this course into the initiatives they're doing around AI there. I have someone who's gone back to the US and who is making art and music using what he learned in the course. I have someone who's at the Institute for the Future in Northern California, building speculative futures. Uh, I have half a dozen of the students who've gone on to get PhDs or are enrolled in graduate programs to get PhDs, who I can't imagine thought they would be PhDs when they started. Uh Uh, I have a woman who's running her own small business, building virtual reality and augmented reality systems to create the possibility for her Aboriginal ancestors' languages to be present in the current world.
0: Mm.
1: I have such an extraordinary collection of students, we have them, they're amazing. And when I look at all of those things, I think rather than what is the one world we are making, what I think is we're actually creating the possibility of multiple points of intervention in multiple different places. And that each one of those students is carrying in their portfolio of ways of being, a way to ask a whole set of critical questions, a way to open up the space they find themselves in and make room for a different set of possibilities. Uh-huh. A way of not taking the technology they're being given and slavishly implementing it but being instead able to ask differently. I know every single one of those is in a work environment where they are going to change all the people around them uh-huh. and I don't quite know what the picture is I would paint of uh-huh. the end state But I do know that what we have created in three years is already a change in conversations in the multiple places where all those students now find themselves. And that feels like not a bad thing. Just one more thing, as Steve Jobs used to say, one more thing. It's also the case that three cohorts of master's students and two cohorts of PhDs, 50% female, in the applicant pool, in the successful applicants, in the graduates. And so here we are sitting in a college of engineering and computer science, and our student cohort looks like the world. Wow. And
0: wow. 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 yeah,
1: exactly. For me, that feels like a really important
0: thing. It's huge. It's huge. Yeah. We, we haven't seen that kind of equitable uh, well, enrollment in that way. That's where we want to see more people having the opportunity who haven't been, who are underrepresented. I, I just applaud you on every front. Genevieve, of yours, interesting. Um, I think even more talking with you today. I I look forward to a future conversation. Uh, AI is something that I think we are, like you said, it's affecting every aspect of our life in ways that we don't know. But we certainly want people like you who are leading the next generation of sustainable, ethical, and uh, not just efficient AI, but leading to wondrous things. And so I wish you every success. And thank you so much for coming on Breakthroughs. It's really been a great conversation. Oh, it's
1: absolutely my pleasure, Beth. Thank you so much. And if people find themselves listening to this and thinking, oh, <laughs> I, I want help. in, I want I want in, I want to help. I have someone <laughs> I should send to you. you. You can find us on all the socials, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, the internet more broadly. And you should just feel free to look us up. we
0: are going to be sharing this on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and uh, spread the good word. We need the best people who are going to be forging our future in AI. So thank you for you your time, Genevieve. Such a very pleasure. kind. From Cleveland to Australia. All Thanks, right. Ben. My question here is twofold. Number one, where does AI appear in our lives? And what might be a misunderstanding we have about AI today?
1: Sure. Listen, I think some of the ways that AI is appearing in our lives is really banal. Like, it's just, it is not the stuff of movies. It's the things you don't even notice. So, you know, whether it is, were you in downtown New York, go to Manhattan today, and you were to step into any of the big buildings in Midtown, all of the elevators in those buildings are running proto-AI stack. So they are artificially intelligent systems. You no longer press a button, those carriages in that lift system are rearranging themselves to save energy and anticipating where you will be in the building. And they've been doing that for a little while. If you turn on your TV and you go to your favorite streaming media service and content provider, they are using predictive algorithms and learning systems to help you find new content. If you were turning on your light almost anywhere in the United States, you are participating in a grid that is using an analytic framework to determine where the energy consumption will be. I mean, there are learning algorithms almost everywhere around you at the moment. Uh, If you were in other parts of the world, you might be on a transportation system that is, if not artificially intelligent, certainly already autonomous. Uh, The light rail that runs through my hometown here in Canberra, uh, the rail system controls the traffic lights. It determines whether the traffic light should be red or green based on its needs it, it, I, I feel it thwarts cars and pedestrians routinely and it's a very interesting <laughs> system uh, but so there's lots of early versions of AI in the world around us you know that I don't even think we notice because in some ways you know our uh, Hollywood and science fiction trained us to think that AI would turn up looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger or you know <laughs> Wally as opposed Great. to a Lyft. Uh in terms of applications I've really liked that I've seen recently, there's a glorious one going on here in Australia on the, um, the Queensland coast, so up north from where I am now, there has been a partnership between our local Commonwealth Scientific Industrial Research Organisations, I think like the American National Labs and Microsoft. And it's been using drones, cameras and machine learning to analyse the beaches to look for turtles hatching their eggs because we have a set of endangered species up there and trying to work out when the turtles are hatching so you can send park rangers there to protect the egg clutches from feral pigs and so they're using drones and cameras and machine learning to save an endangered species. And I think that kind of stuff is really quite glorious.
0: Fascinating. I don't know if if you heard in Australia, you probably did, because I think it made international news, what happened at Surfside with the the tragic, tragic collapse of the Champlain Towers. It was a quiet beach community until this happened. I know that there are services that came in, I think, from Israel, the IDF, that had technology, I'm assuming AI, to be abiding the people in the collapse.
1: Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of use of not fully AI, but autonomous robotic objects, uh, being able to comb computer vision for those kind of stuff. We saw some early versions of that in um, Fukushima too, the nuclear reactor. We sent robots in, not humans. I think there's a lot of work starting to happen where people are combining Machine learning, by which I mean, you know, a capacity of a system to analyze a large tract of data, see patterns in it and act on those patterns. So things like cameras, but also microphones, uh, infrared arrays, all manner of kind of making sense of the world, collecting data and making sense of it. And then the AI piece being not only an ability to do all of that, but then learn over time and act without needing to be given a specific framework. So the system is, you know, making its own sense of the world and moving through it. Certainly seeing all kinds of versions of that. I mean, as of yesterday, I believe the German government has greenlit the next stage of autonomous vehicle trials in in Germany. And for them, they've been not doing individual cars, but trucks. They have a particular part of their highway system that they are opening up to these autonomous trucks because they you know they have a really well-paid road system and an incredibly robust telecommunication system to carry the data and a safety system. And I think, you know, we'll start to see more experiments like that. As you said, Israel, there's clearly an experiment going on there with autonomous vehicles collecting puzzle actually collecting data through their sensor arrays and using that data to help determine street repair needs and things like that so there's a lot of kind of mobility but say with the and pigs yeah. was a nice moment for me
0: yeah that's beautiful so founding the three ai institute at the australian national university in september 217 uh, one deceptively simple mission <laughs> I, to wrap this up i have to give you the opportunity to say you know, what it is that you're doing that's enabling safely, sustainably, by scaling AI? If Can you explain that in lay terms so the person with the least familiarity with AI would understand the benefits of what you're doing?
1: So i look at these systems, the ones I've been talking about, cars, lifts, elevators, you know, all those things. And build a world with those systems in it. You're going to need to be able to combine traditional electrical engineering, civil engineering, computer science, in that about how moving move and think about history, about policy and regulation, all of those things. And I thought to myself that help make this next future technology and scalable, history tend to be a bit of a history. History uh, is good to ask, better questions to ask about the future. I'm not sure if this answers, but it at least says, here's the places you should go look. I want to history of the introduction of big technologies, so sort of technical systems that changed the world, the steam engine, electricity, computers. Those systems had been accompanied by the development of a new set of skills and a new kind of framework for thinking about the world. Steam engine on top of a mine in Cornwall to a functioning railway system took the creation of the entire field of civil engineering. From instance, experiment with light bulbs to a functioning electrical grid took electrical engineers. From the computing, a thing as big as oh, the football, oh. to something that you know you could stick in your pocket. And by the way, things we invent a high field of computer science and computer scientists. There's going to take artificial intelligence. I thought, well, the same. But like these earlier technical shifts, that it's actually going to require a new field of study, like a new work, a new set of people who are going to have to be skilled a little bit differently. Okay. Um, Computer science exist before it was first articulated in the 1960s. And when it first came into existence, it was mathematicians rebranding themselves and logicians rebranding themselves, and a few scientists, you know, a few physicists going, Oh, I might do that too. And a moment in time, and I thought, Well, hell, we're going to need something we don't have. And I love all the universities that I know and love and people who I respect tremendously. And I went, I think we might need to make something more than is being made now. And thought, okay, well, who's going to do it? guess it's going to be me. So I said, right, I think we should build a new branch of engineering. When you say thing, there's this moment where you think I have completely lost my mind. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then you know, the incredible privilege of having been educated in the US and the remarkable boot camp that was my lived experience at Intel mm-hmm. uh, means that I know that people do impossible things every day. And I know that unless someone stands up and says they're going to do the thing that seems impossible, it doesn't get done. And for all the ways in which I know America can be deeply complicated, one of the things I most admire about it is its relentless ability to decide that it is going to make its own future. And so I just went, well, OK, then I'm going to build a branch of engineering. I love it. <laughs>
0: Having decided. I love, it. I love that. That's your independence. You're yep. your, your just so wide eyed and. A feminist uh, through and through. And more importantly, I just think a person who's determined to make a positive difference.
1: Yep. And so then I said to myself, right, well, how do you build a branch of engineering in the 21st century? Mm-hmm. After I think I panicked for a bit, bought some shoes, had some chocolate, <laughs> uh, I went, right. I think there are some easy, you know, some sensible things you do. You'd go find some people who want to do it with you. Because I think one of the things I also learned from my time in Silicon Valley is that it's really easy to tell the story about a lone man and a big idea, but the reality is they were never by themselves, right? It was always a group of people, and it was always a group of people who were committed to each other and to building something new. So I was like, right, first I need to go find the people who want to be on this journey with me, and then we just need to start radical experiments. We should see if we can teach this new branch of engineering into existence. We should see if we can research it into existence. We should see if we can theorize it into existence. Like, what are the big questions we want to answer? And so over the space of what has now been three-plus years, I've collected a group of people. There's now about 35 of us here. Uh, We've had three cohorts of master's students. The third one are in process. We've collected our first PhD students. We've found a theoretical framework that makes sense. We've conducted research all over the world. We have a whole collection of partners who are on this journey with us. And I still think it is an insane thing to do, to say you're going to build a new branch of engineering. And I'm still pretty convinced that it's a... (laughs) going to take me longer than I thought. i thought I'd get it done in five years, which might have been overly ambitious. But I also know that there's a whole lot of other people who see that this is something they want to commit to, who have given up pieces of their lives to come and study with us or have worked out how to partner with us or open their organisations to me and mine to come and spend time with them. And there is something kind of remarkable, I have to say, about being willing to stand on stages. And I have done this now for three and a half years, stand on big stages and little stages and tell this story. And at the very end, just look out into a room full of faces and say, and here's the thing, I need help. There's no way I can do this alone. And more to the point, there's no way I would want to. Because if you actually, actually committed to building a future that is better than the present in which you find yourself, it has to be better for more than just yourself, which for me means you always want other people to be on that journey with you. And I think there's something really, something really interesting about being someone who is willing to say that on stage. And I know occasionally I have people tell me, asking for help that way makes you look weak, or as a woman, you shouldn't do that. And all I know is that every time I stand there and ask for help, I actually feel more open to the world than close to it. And I know that there'll be someone in that room who hears that and wants to help. But I also know there'll be someone else there who hears it and knows the next time they're trying to do something they don't have to do it by themselves.
0: Genevieve, this is really a fascinating discussion. And thanks for answering all of my questions. I have so many more, but I'll be following you and look forward to hearing more about your uh, pursuits and your accomplishments going forward with AI. And for all of those who would be interested in knowing more about the 3AI Institute that Uh, Genevieve is the director of. I will leave a link in my podcast notes as well as to her TED Talk and many of her articles. Thanks for listening.